and we're live. Good morrow. I feel somehow the sound is funny or something. Oh, it's okay, it's okay. Sound of your chair is funny, I'd say. What are you sitting on? Chair, same chair. Squeaky enough today. Hopefully it's not coming through the old airwaves. So are we are we live now or are we starting again? Yeah, we're live, we're live, yeah. You'd have to sit in the ground like me, man. On the you sitting on the ground? I'm always sitting on the ground. You're always sitting no, on no, the ground? Like no, no, doing Japanese this thing, person. I'm sitting on the ground. Because, yeah, like we said before, in this uh, walk-in wardrobe come uh, so you're like closet. under the jackets? I'm under the jackets, yeah. <laughs> Paints a poor picture. But, uh, yeah, how's it going? What's the story? Welcome to the Salt Podcast my name's Eric. Opposite me is Mark on the other side of the world. If you've just joined us, we have a bit of a podcast, a bit of a project where we're, I'm trying to win the IBJJF Masters Worlds 2 <laughs> championships in Blue Belt next year. And I need all the help I can get. With that, Mark, and you could speak to yourself here, Mark, but Mark has a, a behavioral design concept called eco-behavioral design that he's been working on for a few years. And he's using my endeavor to win the championship as an opportunity to employ this concept and get it out there and see if it actually works in the real world. So yeah, if you've just joined us, we've, we've been doing this for a few weeks. We're getting some um, kind of behavioral foundations and discussing things like keystones, constraints, cornerstones. We talked about simplexity last week, which the word itself went down pretty well. <laughs> People were fans of the uh, the word simplexity. Had some good feedback. Did you get some uh, feedback on that? Yeah, I did. Yeah, it's like it's such a simple word, simple word, and then it's like, how come we don't use that word more often? One of my mates is just waiting for the opportunity to drop it at a meeting. <laughs> it was that. <laughs> Well, I, I, I don't think we're name dropping in this thing. Uh, so, probably yeah. can't, yeah, it's probably. Uh, I don't have his permission. But uh, yeah, so like if you've just joined us, we've only a few episodes done. If you want to get the best benefit of this, you know, I'm not a big fan of encouraging people to go back to the start. But if you're, if you're going to get the best benefit of what we're doing here, it's probably the best idea to, to jump back to episode one and, and get up to speed. If not, just try and join in, <laughs> see where you land. But uh, yeah. Yeah, so what are we going to talk about today? Right, so last week we did, finished the intake session, and we're going to get to, say, the design that I did on the basis of that. But really we're kind of launching into the basics of habit and habit change for the first time in a kind of robust fashion. So I was thinking it might be worthwhile saying a little bit about habit, right? Habit is a popular term in the culture these days and has grown even more popular over the last five or 10 years. But it tends to be presented in a rather, say, diminished or, I don't know, even depleted form. And we get a very, for, for me, a peculiar sense of what, what kinds of things we are when we think that we are these kind of habit-forming habit entities in the way that it's normally described. So I was thinking maybe we could talk a little bit about just, just to give a sense of the, say, divergent landscape of views on habit and then talk a bit more precise about where 
I'm coming coming from with the notion of habit, and then a little bit about how best to change habits within the kinds of say conception that I'm using. So you speak to like, you know, because obviously you you mentioned in one of the first episodes about you talked about the likes of BJ Fogg, and I know there's obviously some very well-known other speakers and authors on habit. You know, you talk about Charles Dewey, the power of habit, or you talk about James Clear, atomic habits, and those kind of things. Can you speak to them and then how your view aligns or differs from them? Is that your plan? Right. Well, the way I'll set it up, you kind of get a sense of within which trajectory they exist and how what we're doing here exists somewhat parallel to that. Does that make sense? So, Yeah, okay, go ahead. We'll just just jump in with any questions because I don't I don't know how how detailed I should make this or you know how boring it's going to be if I, if I hang on. So I should say that you know a, a central say part of my PhD is developing the notion of habit. So you know it's something I'm quite familiar with and it fascinates me. So it could bore people, and I don't, I want to be sensitive to that. But maybe you can act on behalf of people and uh, jump right, in. So- and, I, I'm the guinea pig. If I'm getting bored, people are getting bored. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm probably super sensitive to that, so maybe I'll jump in ahead of that. But uh, yeah, keep going. Right. So habit, as we ha- you know have it within say Western philosophical tradition, traces right back to Aristotle, and he would have taught about habit. I think he used the notion of hexus, and hexus really described something like a relatively stable disposition. And for Aristotle, it was very central to like what it meant to be a good person, right? was to kind of fashion your hexes or your hexesis, if you will. And he often talked about the idea of a habit being this kind of second nature, right? That could be overlaid on on top of, say, um, the kind of spontaneous activities that derive straight from your biology, right? So you had a kind of, first nature which was your kind of embodied being and then you had habit that was something that was fashioned on top of that and from aristotle within the western tradition at least i don't know much about habit actually elsewhere or say comparable or um, comparative notions in other philosophical traditions but in in western philosophy you have this kind of a split not long after aristotle into kind of two diverging trends one being or often or referred to as a kind of organicist perspective and the other being an associationist perspective. Now, this is relatively kind of recent uh, classification and they probably wouldn't have thought of them themselves in those terms. But within that, you get this kind of, say, breaking in the notion of habit. And when I said earlier that, you know, you'll see where BJ Fogg and these people land, they tend to land in the associationist, whereas uh, the stuff I'm doing or we're doing lands more in the organicist. But so the associationist may be the kind of primary exemplar there, or maybe they say the first uh, modern philosopher that, say, really articulated the notion of habit within that kind of trajectory was Spinoza and Spinoza just had had this notion of habit that was a kind of mechanism by which events became related 
events, particularly events of the mind, right? So for Spinoza, it was something like the link between ideas. And he had a kind of distrust of this notion of habit, right? So it was something to be suspicious of, right? Because if you're trying to do philosophy or you're trying to think through something and you're just working off the notion of habit, um, Spinoza was like, well, this is just kind of imagination and, you know, things are kind of happening of their own accord and you're not really engaging it. So what he thought uh, was that you had to engage habit with reason, with a kind of rational mind and kind of shape it according to, according to reason. But for him, it wasn't necessarily a central notion. And then you had someone like Hume and Hume came along and said, Rather than say distrust and habit, we should distrust reason itself because reason itself is kind of constructed from habit, right? So habit for Hume was something very basic, but it was also this kind of mere linking, right? This mere association. So Hume would say like, you can't really say that the sun is going to rise tomorrow. The fact that you uh, infer that it is going to rise is just habit. And for Hume, then he was kind of suspicious of any sort of, um, you know, rationalism writ large. And that kind of continues then right right up into, say, the 20th century. And then you get people like the behaviorists who you might have heard of. Have you heard of, say, someone like Skinner or Watson? Or you've, you've, you've probably seen the examples where uh, you have a, a, a rat in a box and it's getting like a pellet of food. And, you know, it starts, say, hammering its paw on this lever and out comes the pellet. Yeah, that kind yeah, of thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. So what ended up happening was they took the notion of habit and in some sense it became more of a heuristic, right? So they started to apply other language. They would talk about rate of conditioned response or something. But what they basically did was kind of sterilize it of experience altogether and uh, habit became this very ref- reflex-like, you know, almost mechanistic association between events or between behaviors. And within, say, 20th century psychology, following from the behaviorist, you had what we talk about as the kind of cognitivists. And they were very suspicious of the behaviors because effectively the behaviorists did away with experience altogether and said the only thing that was important was this kind of stimulus that you could see and the response right so the stimulus being say a bell or a light or whatever the case may be and the response being whatever the behavior was right so if you follow that into today's kind of landscape you start to see like notions of habit like charles dwig and whatnot have this kind of very stimulus response reflex like notion at heart even i'm not sure of bj fogg's say epistemology or his whole kind of philosophical system but Uh, word check what's epistemology mean okay so epistemology is um how how both the kind of system by which we garner knowledge right so when I when I said it there, I would be thinking like I'm not sure how he thinks that we come to know things in the world and the kinds of frameworks he applies. So I'm not sure 
how he's thinking about habit from a kind of philosophical perspective. But when I see his uh, his kind of what he talks about as uh, his recipes or habit recipes, he basically seems to be describing these kinds of stimulus response situations. And it seems to kind of, it betrays this very associationist perspective. Does that make sense? Yep. So the other trend then being these, this kind of organicist perspective, right? And this kind of maybe started with someone like, Immanuel Kant. Now I'd have to go back and look at my writings on this to to really um, kind of outline his perspective on habit because it's not something I spent much time on. But basically, the organicist say trajectory kind of stipulates that habit is not just this uh, kind of micro mechanism in in the mind or in the brain that links things together. Right, it's more like this kind of ecological structure that is in some sense almost alive, right? So you get a lot of different thinkers then kind of picking up the baton of the organicist and saying different things about what habits are and how fundamental they are. So someone like Ravison, who was a kind of French spiritualist, he had like habit at the very core of his, his philosophy. And he would say like that we kind of know nature and we're intimate with nature because we are capable of habituation, right? So habit really describes how stability emerges within a kind of uh, flux. I say you have this ongoing flux, which is, I mean, the universe, right? Right large, but then Within that, you see these emerging stabilities, right? Things take shape and they, they take shape for a certain amount of time or whatever. And for for Ravison, he would say that is in some sense the universe, right? Habituating form. Whitehead would say something similar. He would say that even the very basic laws of nature are something more akin to habits. They're just habits at such kind of long timescales that they have... Uh, a sense of enduring inevitability or inevitable inevitable endurability, if we could say that. So Ravison would say, you know, the fact that we can take on habit, you know, kind of gives us this very intimate relationship with all of being because being in itself has some sort of tendency towards habituation. And something like a simple habit is still just reflective of that. As it has one idea, it's not very popular, but it, it kind of betrays this organicist feel of it, and it seems quite different, right, than a mere association. But then you get people like uh, Husserl and Merleau-Ponty who really kind of take the notion of habit, Dewey, James, and apply it to kind of modern psychology and the understanding of, say, behavior and experience. And the kind of frameworks that I work in today in action, we're seeing this revival of this notion of habit because it fell off entirely, right? Once the behaviors came, did their thing, the cognitivists came and criticized them and said, you're not looking at experience. Experience is somehow important. Therefore, we can kind of dismiss your account. Habit effectively fell by the wayside and you had this notion of mental representation that effectively took over. 
So then you have the inactivists who are, say, contemporary philosophers and psychologists who are trying to revive the place of the body within psychology. And one thing they argue, or part of what we argue, I suppose, is that we need to revive this notion of habit and we're best served by reviving it in the organicist terms, right? So we'll kind of see habits as something like a flexible, a kind of flexible disposition that kind of can be embedded in a person and can allow them to respond to self-similar situations with some degree of, say, variation, right? It's not just a stimulus response kind of mechanism. It's more like this kind of, um, how would I say, there's a kind of relationship between, say, an activity of a certain type and the structure that motivates that activity. And there's a, a living relationship with it whereby the activity organizes the structure such that it's inclined towards that activity under self-similar conditions. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering, like, could you give an example? So if, like, if you had if you had the two schools of thought and you just use, like, a just picked a habit, so, like, I don't know, could you say, like, smoking right. is, a, is, is a bad habit? So one school of thought, you know, this is because of X, and then your school of thought and those that hold the same view as you would be, you know, could you use one example and show the two different views? Just right. To so, make it- so, yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. So a, go- a good way to think about that might be just to say, if you have a mere stimulus response, right, and you're inclined to do this thing anytime you see this, say, trigger, Right, so like I'm right. I don't smoke. I used to smoke, but at a time, so smoking. The first after you had coffee, you would smoke. Right. I think I used to do that. I think that so like there was like this stimulus. Couldn't couldn't have a cup of coffee without then having a cigarette. So there's an example. Right, but say if if you're going to try and break it down like that, like the organist's perspective wouldn't say that it doesn't make sense to see those two things as related. It would just say that. It's, it's way more complex than a mere stimulus response, right? Yeah. So if you think about, you know, you go into the toilet and even though you're not, even though you don't need to go to the toilet, you all of a sudden feel the need to pee, right? So has that ever happened to you? Um, you go into toilets when you don't need to pee, do you? You go into the, <laughs> you go into the bathroom. Just hang around in toilets. <laughs> <laughs> you go to the bathroom to wash your hands and when you find yourself there you do actually have this sense of needing to pee okay no, right. not too often <laughs> exactly exactly but not too often right so if it was mere stimulus response every time you went you'd need you'd have the 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 feeling of needing to pee or if it was mere stimulus response you know every time you encountered the stimulus you have would have the kind of reflexive response of of whatever the action is that's meant to accompany it. But so the organicist perspective is kind of richer insofar as it says habits are nested within larger networks, which are nested within larger networks, right? So it's the systems perspective where you have this nesting of structure and the habit will come forth when the dynamics are already present that form the background for that thing, 
right? So the habit is a kind of a emerging from this rich background in which it looks like a mere stimulus response, but it's not a mere stimulus response because there's all these other conditions in okay. place already. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. Um, so the, the basic say, difference is that you get a much richer notion than mere stimulus response, but it also yeah. actually is interesting, and we'll get to this a bit later, and I think that's why the framing is helpful because when you go to change habits, that's important, right? Yeah, because I know, right, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I know that some of the commonly held current views on these books we've kind of referenced are the likes of, you know, you have a stimulus, you replace a habit with another habit is a good way to to do something. You know, like if, if on a, I don't know, if on a Friday evening, like for me, you have pizza, like maybe a good, you know, that the commonly held worldview might be that I should, instead of eating pizza and not doing anything, I should replace that pizza with something else that's maybe healthier, but it's still kind of satisfying that stimulus response. Um, but what you're saying with the organicist view and your view is that it's a lot more complex than that. Well, no, I think the practice is actually very similar, right? So I, I don't think, that's what I would always say about BJ Fogg and, and Atomic Habits and these various authors. I actually think, the practice is for the most part fine, but when you try and make sense of when it doesn't work, for instance, it doesn't give you the tools to actually make sense of that. And it also reduces the kind of thing that you take yourself to be. So it's still a good idea to do that kind of thing, right? And the organicist yeah, yeah, so, is not going to say anything different. Yeah. But you can appreciate where they're coming from because I suppose the simple, the, 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 the simpler they make these things, the, the, the the, the more likely it is for people to be able to change these habits, you know? For sure, for sure. And I mean, I think, you know, hopefully we'll see today that the eco-behavioral design process is every bit as simple in practice. It's just that the framing is different. Yeah, okay, okay. You're right. understand, understanding it's more complex, but it's simple in practice. Because, right, if we, remember I said, like, you have this nesting of structure and the stimulus response the apparent stimulus response um, relationship arises w against this background, right? But that background extends out and out and out and out. So it's not just you in a particular environment, it's you in a particular environment at a particular time in particular relationship to other people, you know, in, an, in a lar larger community and so on and so forth. So yeah. certain habits are more likely to take place given those kinds of levels of background. Mm. And when you think about, well, why is this, why, why is this habit not sedimenting or stabilizing despite my having attempted it a million times, right? The eco-behavioral design perspective starts to give you traction on why that kind of thing is. Um, and you can kind of get a better sense than how to introduce meaningful habits and habits that are going to be more rich and more likely to stabilize for you. Right, so it's it's a kind of existentialist account insofar as you're saying, how can I situate myself meaningfully and develop the kinds of habits that are going to be most meaningful for me? And having this view as opposed to those other views is going to kind of help you figure that out. And it's just philosophically, I think, more accurate and more interesting. Right, And if you're doing this kind of practice, 
And for me, you know, it does become a practice, right? It's systematic enough that it allows you to kind of start to see things through it. Those are the kinds of sensitivities I think you want to be developing, right? You don't want to start, you don't want to think about yourself more and more as this atomistic entity, uh, you know, autonomous onto yourself and just acting in your own accord, regardless of conditions. You want to be able to see how you are a manifestation of those conditions and how then, you know, you, you act in relationship to them. Is it seeking to push off uh, responsibility a little bit? And I'm just saying this like as a devil's advocate, because like to have that view is kind of saying, well, I'm just a nature of my environment and my ecology, you know, is it kind of like, you know, well, I am, this is, this is not my fault. You know what I mean? Right, this right, is right. what I am. Like if you have poor behaviors, there's right. nothing I could do about this. I'm a product of my environment. Is that what it's saying as well? Uh, if you want to read it like that. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the fact is that that's the case, right? It's, it's not. So like personal responsibility is an interesting idea, right? You can be organized to conceive of yourself as personally responsible and act in a way that you have a sense of being that. But to say, have embodied that idea that you are personally responsible and you therefore act in accordance with that um, is really a habit, right? That you've kind of somehow sedimented uh, probably because of some conditions within which you grew up or whatever the case may be. And um, actually what you're doing, it's a bit like the simplexity notion we, we talked about previously, right? You're applying a simple idea, personal responsibility, to this kind of skill that has layers and layers and layers behind it, which is um, a sense of being capable of acting towards the kinds of things that you feel you should act towards in the times that you should act towards them or something. Right. But the idea of being personal, personally responsible embodies, you know, in, in say everyday terms actually embodies a lot of things that we don't think about. Insofar as you're kind of glossing over the, <laughs> right. The always evolving you know, infinity of the universe pushing you towards certain sorts of action, right? If you just say, well, I'm just personally responsible or that's the best metric to measure, say, someone's action, I was like, well, hang on here. You know, where is the agency in this situation? Where is the agent? And, you know, a lot of the time that's what we do in court cases. We say, you know, even though maybe it appears like this person did this thing, we kind of hash it out and have to reflect carefully about whether or not this person is personally responsible. And then we attribute weird ideas like, I don't know, normal mental health. If we have normal mental health, we're personally responsible. And, you know, it's tricky here because like, you don't want to just say, no, there is no personal responsibility. And we should think about things from a, say, deep ecological perspective all the time. That doesn't make sense when you're trying to make sense of things like, I don't know, everyday action and who we should uh, lock up and whatnot. And I actually think it's probably useful to be organized with some sort of notion of personal responsibility 
because it just makes you more effective in your immediate domain. But, you know, there's kind of really deep philosophical questions that underlie all, all of those. What about like, you know, like let's talk about, you know, is it seeking to push off responsibility? Like there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of literature out there as well, like, you know, and, and good stuff, you know, that they talk about like, you know, likes of extreme ownership and they talk about, you know, discipline and that kind of stuff and been, been, you know, I suppose totally responsible and whatnot, like in the same vein, what's your view on that kind of stuff? Yeah, I can't, I kind of feel like maybe we talked about this at one stage, but it's the same, right? Well, I would say I have a similar view on it. It, it actually makes, it makes sense to see yourself as self-disciplined and to be organized in those terms, right? To, to have a self-conception as being someone that is self-disciplined, I would say is to have, is to have the habit that you are a kind of more generalized habit, right? That starts to apply to other, say, smaller habits, if you will, or smaller actions, that you will do the thing that you feel you should do when you feel you should do it. That's what it kind of is to be self-disciplined. To have kind of developed that is just to have developed that habit that then applies to more smaller actions. But I would say the same thing, right? I don't think say our everyday conception of being disciplined has at its heart this kind of simple of sorts kind of um, a, a kind of almost intuitive but not very well developed notion of of self which is capable of say perceiving the world interpreting in certain ways and then acting on the basis of those perceptions and it has a kind of I think it has this, say, simplexity built into it too, right? So in the same way that I was talking about self-responsibility or whatever, you can see yourself as being disciplined, right? Because you're carrying true disciplined actions or what what are to be likely to be interpreted as disciplined actions. But say for someone who maybe is characteristic of that kind of self-disciplined personality, the likelihood is like they've been through some situation where they came to embody all this complexity. And now when they see it as just acting, it's actually, you know, this rich kind of ecology of habits that undergirds their capacity to just act, right? So, so someone like someone who's in the military, for instance, and now comes out of the military and is just like, you just got to get it done or that kind of thing. You know, them seeing themselves just getting it done is actually built on them having been through this whole ecology of, say, pressures and constraints that is meant to actually get you to a place where you have embodied this this kind of uh, high-level habit that applies to all these other smaller habits or, or actions, and that is that just-get-it-done habit, right? So self-discipline becomes this kind of, it, it kind of captures this kind of rich developmental process that has taken place within the military or whatever the case may be. And in some sense, what we're trying to do is something a little bit similar, right? If you keep engaging the eco-behavioral design process, it becomes easier over time such that you kind of develop these larger scale habits that are that allow you to more easily engage these kind of more, say, smaller actions, if you will.
So like yeah. there's, there's kind of layers of habits, right? And habits then kind of layer and layer and layer into these networks and then they form identities and traits and so on, right? But habit so, is the kind of basic unit there anyway. Right, right, right. So so yeah, we should, we should probably move on to the design. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to see what you've designed for me. Right, so... Uh, I'm going to have to send you this, obviously, but we'll talk through it quickly and then see if it suits. So just to rehash while you're pulling it up there, just last week, and I suppose we've kind of been building up to this, is this is kind of what we're getting at. I want to be in the best shape possible when I attend the World Masters Championships next year to compete at Bluebell Masters 2. To do that... We talked through a, a few different things to get, to get myself there in the best shape possible. And there's going to be behaviors and things I need to do in my training and my preparation to get me to that point. We went through last week, some of my, my typical week. We talked about points in my week that we deemed to be cornerstones. They were kind of set in stone uh, that happen regularly and routine. And from that, you've kind of developed this design. Right. So something we talked about last week as well, you know, was the KPIs, uh, the key, key performance, performance indicator. <laughs> no acronyms. And we, we, we broke that down and said it would actually be helpful because the outcome we were looking at was, am I consistently, consistently in my game? And we said maybe it would be helpful to do a like 1 to 10 scale of whether or not I'm in my game, you know, 0 or say 1 being I'm not in my game at all. 10 being, you know, a master of the game. Whilst uh, I'm at training, you know, rolling with people, basically. Yeah, and when I went away, I thought this was actually, you know, a, a good idea and something worth doing because we could then get a very clear sense of what the outcome would be. So I I kind of took the liberty of doing that because it's, it's generic enough, you know, how you go about something like that. So I think the best thing to do is me just quickly go through them and then we'll have a look at the outcome. And from there, then we'll talk about what the vital behaviors are to reach that outcome. I'll offer up what I think a few of your reasons, uh, motivate, motivating reasons were. And basically, we'll just go through this design process. Go for it. Right. So KPIs with respect to the game. I'll just read these out and then we'll get a sense of what the outcome was. So one was don't know game, not even thinking about it. Two was don't know game, but was trying to think about it. Three was know some game, but only moment, momentarily tried to enact it. Four, know some game, was making a decent effort to enact it. Five, know my game fairly well from all positions, but didn't make a good effort to enact it. Six, know my game fairly well from all positions and made a good effort to enact it. Seven, I'm confident in my game from all positions, but keep getting pulled out of it by my opponent. Eight, very confident in my game for all positions and I'm able to consistently impose it upon my opponent. So remember that one. Very confident in my game from all positions and I'm able to consistently impose it upon my opponent. That was number eight. Mm. Could teach my game, number nine, could teach my game to Marcelo Garcia and I'm able to impose it upon higher belts. (laughs) Ten, could teach my game to Marcelo Garcia and I'm able to impose it on higher belts with ease. (laughs) 
Right, so I thought you were going to say and impose it on Marcelo Garcia. <laughs> I was actually thinking that as I was reading about. Like maybe that's maybe that's eleven. Shout yeah, outs so, to Marcelo Garcia, grappling legend. But if we're thinking about right, how good a game can be, you kind of have to be there once you're talking about tens, right? Because with that guy recently well, yeah. who won won or came second in Abu Dhabi, and he's a blue belt, and he's only training for six months. Actually, you yeah. might be up against him. <laughs> oh no, he's not a master. No, no, <laughs> Thank God. He'd be doing a. He's only. He's in his twenties. He'd be just standard. But so, if, say from that, the outcome, and you can tell me if you think this was was useful. The outcome, rather than just being in my game, was that I'm feeling very confident in my game from all positions, and I'm able to consistently impose it upon my opponent. So I had the outcome, consistently scoring 8 or 9 out of 10 in my game, keep KPI. So the 8 was, I'm very confident in my game from all positions and able to consistently impose it on my opponent. 9 was, could teach my game to Marcelo Garcia and able to impose it upon higher belts. So if you can see yourself getting to that point, you know that's really kind of the the, the gold standard, what you're Mm. doing. Yeah. Does that make sense? Was that helpful or more helpful than say where we'd left things? Yeah, I think so you're saying like when we, I would go to my do my roles when I reflect on the roles or the night of roles, right. I would just give myself a rating for the night falling somewhere on that scale right. and then I would keep an eye on that as I progress through the next eight months and exactly. see if I'm getting up the chain. Right, right, right. Yeah, I do I, think that's helpful. Yeah, I do think it's helpful. And I think the way to do it would be to do it at the, at the start is to do it one rating per night of roles. Right. Because other than that, it'd just be too hard. Like trying to remember the roles, trying to get my rating and all the roles. You know what I mean? I think it'd be just right. rating per night. Yeah, exactly. That was, you know, that was our point, right? How do you get to the simplexity, right? How do you get to the the thing that captures enough but does it in a way that's easy to manage, right? So... Where so so? Where do you think you are at present? Just out of interest, like number say so, number number give me six again. What was six? I go I go a bit lower, and then you can. Right, give me four. Give me four. <laughs> okay, number four was no sum game, and was making decent effort to enact it. Give me three. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is why it's good. This is why it's good. No some game, but only momentarily try to enact it. Yeah. So that's where I am. That's where you are. Yeah. And I think the big one there, and we touched on it last week, and I've started to think about it more, and I've started to talk about the coach, but I need to talk about it more, is the, you know, setting down. I, I know what my game is, probably 80%. And then I need to get that first part of the puzzle, which I still haven't solved, whether I double down on guard pulling to get to the ground or if I just pick a takedown and, and just double down on that yeah. to end up on top and enact what is my favorite game, which is being on top. So I'm yeah, so it's good to probably get a realization there that I'm way down that scale and, and to kind of see what needs to be done to get up the scale. So that's definitely, definitely helpful. Nice. Right. So... We have that as our new outcome, right? So that's very much like on the night of training. What about the rest of the week? Is that stuff you're going to talk about now as well? Well, so 
we don't want to overload you with too much stuff, right? And we said before that this is a keystone, and once we have this in place, other stuff starts to hang off it a bit better too, right? Once you have this in place, it's like the the wolf. Other things start to make more sense because they're all reflected through this. Well, that's not exactly like the wolf, but once the once the wolf's in place, other stuff starts to flourish a bit more easily. So getting this in place is going to be the most important thing we can do. And then as we progress, we'll be thinking, okay, what is it that needs to support this, right? How is it that we need to feed into this? So what I've suggested here for starters, and actually I should say something, like part of the challenge of successful behavior change and a big part of it is actually being patient, right? And doing less than you feel capable of. So I say, if it doesn't feel like it's not worth doing, it's actually not worth doing. Does that make sense? It doesn't feel like it's not worth doing. It's, it's probably not worth doing. It's like a tongue twister, that one. <laughs> <laughs> so if it doesn't feel super, so, so easy and so small that it feels insignificant, right? Yeah. Well, then it's probably not worth doing because you're not going to adapt to it and actually take yeah, it on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so what, I, what I'm going to propose to you here is, is very simple. And, you know, it's simple for that reason, right? That you're, you're going to take it on, you're going to habituate it. And then once you've that habituated and it's totally, it's just part of your existence, you can start incorporating the other stuff that's going to enrich it. But, yep. you know, that was the whole point of doing this whole process. Like, what is the intervention we can make now such that it has the most leverage? You know, it's like the, it's like the wolf, right? What is the thing that we can reintroduce into the, or introduce into the ecology that has the most impact? Yeah. So we said, okay, outcome, that's good. I'm very confident in my game from all positions and consistently able to impose it upon my opponent. That's number eight, yeah? Number eight. And we're saying like get up to an eight or nine. So if you're imposing upon higher belts every now and again, that's when you know you're in good position. Yeah. So vital behaviors was thoroughly map out game from each position, right? That's something that's going to have to be done. At every training session, introduce an element of your game that you need to work on, right? So that's the progress. At every session and in every spar, seek to enact your game to the best of your ability. Yeah. So they're the vital behaviors that if done, right, if, they, if they're done and carried out over time, we can get to number eight on this. Be good actually to check in on a on a weekly basis whenever we do this or on, on each podcast, see where we are on the scale. Right, right. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Yeah, and you know we're going to go through this process with other things, say with regard to your fitness and that kind of thing. But give me two as well. There, I want to see if I'm. I want to make sure that I'm not at two versus three. I'll, What's do, you, two? I'll do you one and two as well. So, one is don't know game and not even thinking about it. Two. Don't know game, but was trying to think about it. Three, know some game, but only momentarily tried to enact it. Yeah, three, three. Yeah. Right, so there's massive room for progress. That's that's a good thing, right, to be able to acknowledge that and see that in a kind of... It's like now, now that, like, you know, you could argue one and two are null and void. Now you could almost put three as one and then change the, the remaining. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm yeah, not going to go further backwards. Well, I know, leave it there. It makes me feel like I've done something. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. 
So reasons for and advantages of acting. And you can tell me if you feel that there was stronger ones. I think when you're when you hear these, you should be thinking, do they make me feel? You know, how do they make me feel? Because these are the ones I pulled out as being the ones maybe that you focused on the most or seem to have the most, say, power. But you know, you can change these yourself as you go, or whatever the case may be. But you should really think how am, how is this in my body, right? How does it? How do I relate to this when I hear it? And if it's motivating, it's something you keep. This is the perfect time, and I probably won't have this opportunity again. That was one reason. This will be an incredible achievement to be able to share with my family and an inspiration for my new child. That was another reason. Just knowing something that not just knowing that I gave something my best shot is very motivating. Yeah. There were three big ones. Yeah, they're really good, yeah. Like th- think about, say, you know, we're not going to do it straight away, but we have these in the background and you'll have them in your journal, which we're going to talk about. And, you know, using them as affirmations or some version of them as affirmations, like thinking, how do they resonate in my body? Do they motivate me? Do they, you know, have some sort of meaning for me? Right. Is there anything else you think you could add, add to that straight away? Like you said, we you know, we talked for ages about this stuff, but there were the three I pulled out as maybe being the most impactful. No, that's good. Okay. And thinking about, say, improving your jiu-jitsu in general, like just, you know, training for this, I know I'm going to improve. Uh, yeah, um, but I suppose I'm not, like, you know, you could uh, say it's all on a path towards purple belt. You know, this is all part of it. So I suppose there's a motivation to to continue to progress in that direction. Right. So that's a bit of a motivation. Right. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll note that down and then have a think about it. So I have here a value or a mission statement. And one of the things that you're going to do is buy a journal, right, specific for this process. Does that does that sit with you well, or would you prefer to do it on your phone? I think the tangibility of a journal for this one project is is actually quite nice. Yeah, I liked it. No, I, I'm I'm happy to write down. Yeah. Right. So, I'm going to send you on this stuff, obviously. But as part Tran- of your home, transcribe into a journal and think about. Right. Transcribe this, but in in your own words, and again, like thinking about how you feel about them. Right, this yeah, is yeah. really important, right? Like the sensitivity to how you feel to the words that you're using. You know, this is part of the design process to the things that, that you're relating to in your, in your environment, to the times in your environment. So I just have here a kind of, say, template for what I want you to write out in your own words. And it basically says, I'm going to map out my game in full detail. And every day I show up for training, I'm not, I am going to introduce some element of it that I'm not yet confident and work on enacting it in my role until I'm very confident in all positions and consistently imposing it upon my opponents, sometimes even on higher belts. That was a bit of a mouthful, but I know that if I do this consistently and make it a habit, it will be, it will significantly contribute to my performance in the world's next year. 
And that is important to me because it's part of this opportunity that I have now to give something that I care about my absolute best shot, which will give me a reason to be proud and will be an inspiration to those around me. Right. So we're just capturing the outcome, the vital behaviors, the motivations in a kind of mission statement. Yeah, yeah. Right, so yeah. that's your why, I guess. Yeah. Your what your what and your why, maybe. Right. So from from the cornerstones or from the critic from the kind of like, you know, uh, looking at your routines and everything, I've taken out three cornerstones that I think are going to best suit our purposes. So one is Saturday morning before jujitsu, right? You said you'd a bit of time there and you seem to suggest that it was a, a free time of sorts that you didn't seem to have any el- anywhere else in the, in the week. Does that make sense? Uh- well, not really. It depends. Like we hang around and have coffee, so it's like family time, right? But it depends on the nature of what you're about to say. Like I'm sure there's 15 minutes in there or five minutes in there. Like it depends what you're. Well, we can, you can tell me so in a second because I just had these critical moments right there, or these cornerstones. The other one was the end of work and your to do list, right? That's a kind yeah. of cornerstone that we can use. And the other one was your three minute drive to to training. Yeah. So, so what I had is say this kind of breaks down in terms of um, unique activities that happen once that you need to do in order to set yourself up and then say daily activities that it might include your vital behaviors and then say weekly activities that allow you to kind of keep the system going. So for the unique activities, the first one was buy a journal and write your mission statement. Yeah. The second one was map out the components of your game in detail and get clear on where you sit with each of them. Yeah. So there I did again the 1 to 10. You can, we won't read this out, but it was like you can have a scale for each of those components and yeah, if you yeah, want, yeah. you can kind of break them down a bit further. So there were the two kind of like things that I was proposing, say you buy the journal whenever, but Saturday morning I was thinking would be a good time for you to do that mapping out of the game in detail. Now, I don't know if that's true. Maybe there's a better time. Whatever time suits you with regard to that one is obviously. Yeah, yeah. And the daily activities were at the end of each workday when I'm writing my to-do also include a note of what you're presently working on and how it fits with your game, right? And set an intention to enact it in training or to watch something related to it in the bath, right? So each day after work, you're either going training or you're having a bath that evening. So you're enacting something or say you're recalling what it is you should be working on. You're going into training and working on it. You're thinking what it is you need to develop further. You're going home, you're watching it. And you have yeah. that stability every day at the end of work that mm. you're just going to be there at that time and have that opportunity. Yeah. Is that good? Yeah, it is, yeah. So each day on the way to the gym, just review game plan and consolidate intentions for training. Yeah, so I'd have checked in on myself at the end of work. I go right. home, whatever, and if I'm going to train, and I, I check back in on the same intention again on the way to the training. Yeah, and you can maybe go through it in your head, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then the weekly was 
each Saturday morning before BJJ, I'll update my game dashboard, which is just in your journal or whatever, which is basically just where am I, what am I working on, that kind of stuff. Mm. Noting what noting what it is I need to be working on for the week ahead and what progress I've made during the week. Yep. Right, so that was basically it. What I'll do is send you on this kind of action plan. As you can see, it's quite simple, right? You've got yeah. two things you need to do up front, and then you've got the thing you do every day, and then you've got the thing you do once a week. Yeah. And I think right now we still have a good bit of time, right, obviously before August. But if we can get these things fairly stable, right, think of the progress you can make if these are stable right the way through until July or whatever. Yeah. So habituating these is going to be huge for us, right? Yeah. And I don't think it's actually necessary to complicate it any more than that with respect to this aspect of your, of your prep for the time being. Yeah. So there was one last question then. Actually, what I'd normally do with a client is say, let's talk through the action plan. But I don't think we have enough time here. And that's something you can do on your own. Where it's basically just saying, okay, I'm going to, on this day, I'm going to go out and buy my journal, you know, and I'm going to set this up. And, you know, when this happens, I'm going to do this and that kind of thing. But mm. I, I don't know. I'll buy, I'll, buy, I'll buy my journal today. Right. And I'll send you on this. Cool. And um, the other thing was just resources here. Do you feel that to do this properly, there's anything you should have that you don't have? Or no. what is it you feel that you should have? Better jujitsu? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it sounds good. It sounds good. I think get stuck into it and see how it goes. Right. So I'm kind of interested, having done that now, how you how you feel about it. You know, it sounds good. It sounds simple. Yeah. The simplexity right, is coming yeah. to the fore. But you can see, say, the value of having gone through the whole thing that we did for the last few weeks. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think now, I think once I start to write, like you said in the journal, once I get the journal, I put my mission statement in, I'll tailor some of that wording. I'll get my my few motivations, which will be very similar to what you've said. Again, maybe tailored to my own words. Get yeah, them yeah, totally. It's just yeah, mix it up yeah. to to that that affect, right? The deeper the the emotion, the the stronger the the value yeah. of those things. And I think once I start to write it all down. And, and get it out there in front of me and have those cornerstones that I'm using as check-ins. I think that's going to be really good, yeah. Right. Actually, can I use this as a, because I, well, no. Well, I was going to say, can I use this as an opportunity to, to rail on affirmations and tell you why I think a- affirmations actually work? Yeah. Can I, yeah? <laughs> okay. why, why, why wouldn't you? Like, because, I can, I'm, not, I'm not stopping you talking. Right, right, sound. Wait, how long do you, oh, you, you mean you need time for it, is it? Yeah, I might need a little bit of time. How long do you need? No, we'll talk about it again. We'll talk about it again. Save it for next week. Right, sound. On uh, that note. But I do, I think it's interesting, you know, because it's something, again, in the popular literature that works, right? But it's a kind of mystery a lot of the time. But I think there's actually pretty clear logic to it once you kind of introduce the kind of frameworks that I've been talking about. 
just wake up every morning. I am the man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bet you the side effect of this, right? And we can talk about this next week too, is even though this is not your intention, Bet you your jiu-jitsu is going to get better on the back of this as well. I've thought about it. Yeah, yeah. I've thought about it totally. Because like, <laughs> this is applicable to me as much as it is to you just in my training. <laughs> Some yeah. crack if uh, next year, I don't know, touch wood, I don't get injured or something. You had to step in and just won the competition just on behalf of us. <laughs> <laughs> so, someone was saying that to me. What if like I just showed up in the day and uh, hey, that'd be pretty jumped cool. in there? Yeah. That'd be pretty cool. You'd be Masters 1. Take out both categories, man. Oh, Masters uh, 1, why? Because I'm it's 35 that you're Masters 2, is it? Well, that was one of the reasons. Remember I was saying I'm at the bottom end of the next category. So I'm going to yeah, be 36 yeah. next year. So it's 36 to 40, I think. Yeah. Right. Uh, so whatever, 30 to 35. All right, cool. Well, let's leave it at that. That's very good. I think just wrap it up there. I think we've, we've covered a lot of ground today and that's a lot to take in. So simple, but a lot to take in. So let's let's wrap it up and we'll check back in next next time. All right, sound. Sweet, man.